This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. The idea of innovation has become so popular in the development and aid community that, unsurprisingly, it's difficult to keep up. There seems to be forums and conferences and blogs, and yes, even this podcast, that are putting information out there for your consumption to the point of overwhelm. And it can be difficult to cut through the noise to create a better understanding of what works, and more importantly, what doesn't when it comes to better serving those in need. Luckily, there are also people out there like Alice Obrecht, who are helping to curate some of the learning around innovation and make it accessible to everyone. In this 102nd episode of the Terms of Reference podcast, I speak with Alice about her work as a research fellow at the Secretariat for the Active Learning Network for Accountability and Performance, also lovingly known as ALMA, where she's currently leading research on the themes of innovation and effectiveness. And as a part of this work, she also leads the ALNOP Secretariat's involvement in the World Humanitarian Summit process. This isn't, of course, Alice's first gig in our industry. Prior to joining ALNOP, she worked in policy research at several institutions focusing on capacity building of regional intergovernmental institutions and as well as accountability practices and frameworks both in and outside the humanitarian aid sector. I spoke with Alice in London. Hello, Alice. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. Where do we find you sitting today? I am in a phone booth in our offices in London, UK. Which immediately in everybody's brain, you know, they now have the image of you standing in this little red box. I know. I wish it was red. That would be lovely. It's a bit more of a white and kind of pea green color, but I can pretend. Uh, well, I'm going to geek out as well because now I'm also thinking of you as Doctor Who or Doctor Who's assistant. So. But that's just me. I don't me. know if I deserve that honor, but yeah, I'll try to live up to it. You work for Alna. You are a researcher there uh, and you focus on innovations. Tell us a little bit about not only the organization you work for, but uh, your specific sort of thread of work that, that you do every day. Sure. So ALNAP um, is quite a mouthful of an acronym. It stands for the Active Learning Network for Accountability and Performance. And we're a system-wide network or member-based organization that was set up in 1997, dedicated to improving the accountability and performance of humanitarian action, primarily by providing opportunities for learning amongst our membership and the broader system, as well as strengthening the humanitarian evidence base. So we do that across three main areas. One is to increase the quality of the evidence base for humanitarian action by improving the quality of evaluations. Second thing that we do is try to use that evidence base to provide system-wide analysis and monitoring. And so that's where we publish um, a regular State of the Humanitarian System report, which tries to track the progress and performance of the humanitarian system. And then finally, we try to make improvements from this analysis by looking at different key areas for progress. And as part of that work, we try to carry out original research as well as host communities of practice and learning events for our members around a range of different issues. And that's where my work on innovation comes in. So I'm a research fellow. And I work on the topics of effectiveness as well as innovation. And uh, my main piece of work around innovation has been over the past year and a half, this project that we've done in partnership with the uh, another horrible acronym, my apologies, ELRO, which stands for Enhancing Learning and Research for Humanitarian Assistance. So we've been working together uh, on this project on, on innovation in the humanitarian sector. So when you say you've been working with ELRO, I love this, I'll not be ELRO. I'm going to have a heyday with that. I'm trying to, to 
kind of harmonize or maybe minimize our, our acronyms. But yeah. <laughs> what would the development in humanitarian space be without the acronym soup? I don't think anybody would be comfortable <laughs> with that if that went away. Give us specifics about, so you guys got together. You said innovation is something important to look at. Try to yeah. narrow, narrow it down a little bit for me. And I know that you spoke focused specifically on humanitarian aid and humanitarian action. So tell me what the humanitarian uh, aid definition is. Or what, what, how do you define innovation and humanitarian aid? So I think it's a trickier question than it seems. One of the key issues for, from our perspective was how you actually distinguish innovation from uh, normal programming. I think this is a question that I've got when I've talked to people about this research. You know, So what is innovation? How is it actually different from what we do anyway? And it turned out to be a, a really tricky question. Um, when we were looking at the case studies and we posed this question actually to a lot of the innovating project leaders uh, that we spoke to, to ask, you know, how has this project really been different from the other projects you've done? A couple of key things came out. The first thing was that you're doing something differently at a sector or system level. So it's about doing something that's different, not just for you or for your team or for your organization even. You're doing something that really no one has done at, in that sector of the humanitarian system or in the system at large. And so you really don't have previous evaluations or other people's experience or your own experience to help guide you. The second thing is that you're seeking improvement. Again, improvement that has the potential to improve things at sector or system level if it gets taken up and diffused. And third, because you're doing something different at the system or sector level, you are inherently doing it an iterative process. So you have to make adaptations. In short, your theory of change is a lot more like Swiss cheese, I would say, than a block of cheddar, right? You really don't know whether this thing is going to be uh, working, how it actually will work. This is something you're going to figure out as you go along. Now, it's been interesting for me to hear from some of our colleagues across the aisle. Here at ALNAP, we're based at the Overseas Development Institute, which is a think tank in, in the UK. And there's other teams at the ODI that are looking at, that work on development issues. And some of them have been looking at this approach of adaptive programming, which to me is starting to sound a bit like innovation. So I think it'll be interesting to see where this goes as maybe programming becomes a bit more innovative and innovation is still a bit like programming, whether or not these two merge. But for the time being, the way that we've tried to define innovation as separate from programming is that it's an iterative process that identifies, adjusts, and diffuses ideas for improving humanitarian action. So I think innovation as a topic, I think it's been better known and, and was more worked on on the development side um, of the aid spectrum for many years, but it was largely, I would say, unknown or kind of ignored as a formal topic in the humanitarian aid sector up until 2009. That's not to say that innovation wasn't happening. There was a lot of, and that we're trying to be really careful about how we put that in, in our research and in our publications on this. Innovation has always been part of the humanitarian sector. You could even think of the establishment of the International Red Cross Societies in the 19th century as an innovation. Well, as, innovation. And you could argue that in, in those situations, innovation is sometimes, I mean, that's that's necessity, right? People, exactly. People are in these exactly. situations like, oh gosh, I have no house, must find shelter. Exactly. So it's kind of a an inherent part of the humanitarian system. So it's certainly a road that, uh, to borrow a metaphor, a road that humanitarians have traveled down before. But I think the issue there is that while it's good at producing individual innovations as a 
as an output or as a noun. The humanitarian sector isn't quite as good at innovation as an activity. So we were really lacking the kinds of best practices and um, focused attention that's needed to really build up the way in which innovation is done regularly as a core activity in the humanitarian system. And so in 2009, ALNAP looked at this issue and basically introduced um, the first major piece of work on innovation for humanitarians. And since then, what came out of that work was the establishment of the Humanitarian Innovation Fund. So this is a separate entity that seeks to support and provide funding for innovation processes in the humanitarian system. And that fund, the HIF, as we call them in short, is part of ELVA. (laughs) Sorry, it's getting a bit too complicated. So the HIF is part of ELVA, and what they've been doing is funding a number of innovations in the sector for the past five or six years. And so what we've done is work with them to do a series of case studies on the different projects that, th- that they funded. So they funded everything from trialing a new form of um, disaster risk reduction approaches in Guatemala using a microfinance mechanism um, with communities to designing a new water treatment system to be deployed in emergency settings to designing a new type of wheelchair that can be used um, immediately after an earthquake for earthquake victims. So there's really a wide range of of different innovations that they've been funding. And one of our tasks in this research was to understand what are kinds of the common best practices that we could identify across those different projects. Now, are you finding in your research that it's it's, it's you know your toughest job is whittling it down, or is your toughest job going out and finding, you know, you've got these specific case studies from the HIF. Mm-hmm. Are, are those all that you concentrate on, or do you, you know, cast a broader net to also look at just any other innovation that's happening out there that might be worthy um, of mention? In this case, we focus on the HIF, but we've done 15 case studies, so we've done quite a few, and they're all very in-depth. And we used, I won't bore you with the methodology, but we've used quite an intensive methodology to try and test um, what were identified in the literature as potential success factors. So what are the different things that um, innovating teams can do in order to have a successful innovation process? Now, it's kind of difficult. All of this research is difficult, and, I, and, I, and you're asking about challenges. I mean, one of the key challenges to kind of drilling down to concrete findings on this is that there's so much complexity, right? So to what degree do the findings that we see in the case of you know the wheelchair being designed and implemented in Nepal, what are the things that worked in that process that are similar to what worked for Ocho when they tried to develop a very high-tech piece of software that could translate data between different organizations, right? These are very different gadgets, if you will, that are being uh, that are being designed and and implemented. But what are the aspects to the process that we can kind of distill down and say this is how you should approach innovation? So it's basically trying to figure out is there a single kind of coherent practice that we can call innovation? So you know, my next question is going to be: So have you uh, have you, di- <laughs> yeah. have, you dis- have you distilled anything? Yeah, we have. So I think <laughs> we, we we have. We were able to identify kind of five stages. These are stages that were already, you know, fairly well known. And one of the things we were trying to look at in these case studies is to what degree these stages actually come out in practice. And so there are five main stages to an innovation. One is first you want to recognize um, a problem for 
that needs to be addressed by an innovation, or you could be recognizing an opportunity for improvement. So in some cases, we've seen um, organizations identify SMS technology. This is an early example, maybe more relevant for a few years ago, where they identify a certain technology and say, here's an opportunity that could possibly make our practices better. How could we apply it? Mm-hmm. And there, you know, with SMS texting and, and messaging technology, the clear opportunity for improvement lay in the communication between humanitarian agencies and affected people. So it really was brought in to enhance accountability practices there. So recognition is kind of the first step. And recognition often comes from anywhere, really. It can come from affected people if you actually take the time to listen to them. It can also come from field workers and humanitarian staff who are probably, if you bought them a, a cup of coffee, they would be more than happy to get list, give you a laundry list of problems that they see in, in humanitarian action that they think need to be addressed by innovation. Those kinds of problems and opportunities can come from a lot of places. The key challenge then is trying to find the momentum and trigger point, uh, as we called it, for for actually deciding, okay, this is a problem we're actually going to act on. This is something that we need to design something new for. So that moves us into the area of ideation, which is the creation and kind of brainstorming of new ideas to find solutions for that problem. And these are kind of at a broad level. You want to find what that big picture idea is going to be. Is it taking a technology um, that's used in the developed in developed countries, such as inclined plate settler technology, which is something we saw um, Oxfam doing with an academic partner, and then saying, how can we use this inclined plate technology to make a better water filtration, a water treatment system in emergency settings. So it's taking these ideas, broad ideas at the beginning, and then building a process around how to develop that. So the next step that we saw a lot of these projects go into was development and implementation. So development first and then implementation. This involves trying to answer the questions, how can this solution work and does it work? So you're trying to figure out how your potential innovation is going to work, piloting it or testing it on the ground and then, uh, or in, sometimes in a lab setting and then feeding that information back up into redesign. And then finally, the last stage that we witnessed in all of these case studies was diffusion. Although we didn't, we weren't able because of timing to see a lot of diffusion processes fully unfold because diffusion in the humanitarian system can take, you know, can take decades. And I'm sure that that's true in the development side of things as well. Well, so thanks for telling us about those different steps about how innovation rolls out. But what are the specific success factors that you guys have identified? So we've identified seven different success factors. One of them is around collaborating with others. So obviously collaboration is really important for innovation. But one of the surprising things that we found in our research was the importance of having someone within a humanitarian agency who has the ability to translate across the different areas of knowledge that are necessary for developing that innovation. So this is a primary example of this lies in innovations that are relying on, um, on information technologies. So Save the Children UK was trying to develop a piece of software for providing consistent monitoring of malnutrition data in order to provide a better analysis of supplementary feeding programs and how effective they were. So they developed this piece of software. They were working with a private sector IT company that was based in the United Kingdom. And one of the things that they found is that that company that was based with 
that was used to working with, um, you know, clients in a first world country didn't have a great understanding of the humanitarian context or the special kind of software needs that a humanitarian field worker might have. So they really had to get someone involved who could translate between those two different um, kind of, kinds of communities of, of practice, really, the IT world and the humanitarian world. And so what Save the Children ended up doing is that programming team, the nutrition team, um, enlisted the IT department at Save the Children UK to help them communicate with the IT contractor and help them find ways to meet their end user needs. So that translation aspect of collaboration is really important. A second success factor we found was organizing a process. And here, one of the key elements is trying to have a really clear, broad structure in mind for your innovation process. So really identify what are the milestones you want to hit in your innovation process, but then building in as much flexibility as possible as you move from milestone to milestone. So we were trying to look at at whether or not innovation is this just kind of crazy, creative, unmanageable kind of process that shouldn't be organized at all. And what we actually found was having dedicated space and kind of sprints or spurts for creativity is really important, but having an overall structure that actually guides you to a clear end is just as important for success. A third success factor we identified was engaging with end users and gatekeepers. And here, just to explain a bit on terminology, since the humanitarian system is not a private market, you really have to look at not just satisfying your quote-unquote customer, right, your end user, you also have to look at who are the gatekeepers. So we called gatekeepers, those are the actors that can shape the incentives um, or shape the ability of end users to take up your innovation. An obvious gatekeeper is a donor, but it can also be a host government. If they don't support your innovation, then humanitarian agencies might not want to take it up. And certainly, you know, affected people who are citizens in that country might not have access to it. Another success factor we looked at was managing risk, um, which I think would be really interesting to talk about. Here we were looking at what kinds of management, risk management practices seem to be contributing to successful innovation. And there we found that remaining open and agile and responsive to risks as they arise was much more important than having a really comprehensive risk assessment at the outset of your process. Building a culture for innovation is really critical. It's kind of a mysterious factor, this kind of culture question. And I think it's one that we weren't able to crack entirely, but would be really interesting to look at in the future. How do you create that kind of environment where people feel like they can innovate? And there we we found that um, some organizations find that having a kind of open and honest atmosphere where you can be really critical, but also constructive was quite important. For others, it was more about having a lack of hierarchy within the organization that was quite critical. I really liked talking to a person from Danish uh, demining group who commented on the Scandinavian nature of their organization and how that might have contributed to innovation because they were very non-hierarchical. And then finally, one of the key success factors we, we identified was the generation and the integration of evidence. So evidence is really, really important for successful innovation. It's how you communicate to the outside world that your innovation actually offers an improvement over status quo approaches. And I think here we were quite surprised time and time again across the cases at seeing how the innovating teams or innovating organizations 
really had to create protocols and standards or baseline data on their own because none were existing previously to support a comparative assessment between their innovation and what was currently being done. So there really needs to be a lot more activity um, around improving how humanitarians uh, monitor their performance, not just to know you know, to know more about how effective they're being, but also to provide the space to understand how can we improve and what does improvement look like? I know that you've only got 15 case studies, but maybe you're reaching out there. Maybe you, know, you and your colleagues sort of have your, your hands on more other, you know, more studies that you'd like to do out there. Are we mm. seeing a bell curve where there's an awful lot in development and implementation right now? Or is it more of a, you know, the bubble is pushed more towards recognizing problems and opportunities and, you know, sort of you get that long tail going towards diffusion? Yeah, I think, I think it's a good question. I think there is quite a lot. I think recognition is a difficult activity to measure. I'm sure, you know, as I mentioned, there's recognition happening all the time. It's the question of whether or not that gets pulled up. And captured, yeah, captured by organizations. And the capture process is going to be so hard. Exactly. And put into, into an actual process and funded into an actual process. I think there's quite a bit more of activity, especially in the past few years around development and implementation in terms of pilots. But what's been a common problem is this uh, pilotitis. So you have a pilot, um, it either works or it doesn't work, but regardless, then nothing really happens after this pilot. And so you have an innovation that um, worked really well at the small scale, but the proper kind of planning and activities and funding haven't been put in place to really take it to scale at a broader level. I think that's really the the puzzle that a lot of humanitarians, especially those who have been working on innovation now for a few years, are really trying to entangle. And it's a difficult one because diffusion, especially in, in the humanitarian space, it shares some similarities here with development. It's not a private market. So trying to find sustainable ways to take innovations to scale and get them more widely used by other organizations uh, or widely used by by government where relevant is a really important challenge. And I think in the cases that we saw, we only saw a few cases where you could really say, you know, it's been enough time where we could actually make an assessment on the success of diffusion. One of those cases was the Save the Children case that I just mentioned. And that innovation process, we we looked at the portion that the HIF funded, but this was an innovation process that actually started 10 years ago and had funding from a number of different donors. It, it lasted over 10 years. And I think only just now uh, in the past year where they launched the software and provided it externally to other organizations, have they been able to achieve successful diffusion. And that's quite a long process to go through. Mm -hmm. Another successful case we saw was the World Food Program developed a mobile-based food security survey. And they worked very closely with private sector partners on that and had an interesting arrangement where it was the private sector partner that retained copyright over that, um, that product, that mobile survey. So they were able to go on afterwards and sell it successfully to other humanitarian agencies, other actors, whereas WFP had a license to use it um, in any way they chose. So it was kind of both, it was a collaboration from both ends. Both of them provided content in some sense, but they left ownership with the uh, with the private sector partner in order to diffuse, whereas WFP was then able to roll it out quite widely internally. And many times it would leave, you know, knowing as many humanitarian actors as I do, that probably 
left a poor taste in people's mouths, right? But at the same time, it was a win-win for both organizations. They both achieved their relative business goals with that. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's been unpopular. We haven't talked to anyone who who actually purchased it from the from the private sector organization. But I think in general, I think in general, it's considered it is considered a win-win because I think in order to make innovation sustainable and successful for the long run, we do need to be looking at models other than the grant funded model. I think there are some who are working on innovation who focus very much on the marketization or commercialization of these innovations as the way to successful diffusion. I don't think it's necessarily that needs to go in that direction. There's a role for grant funded, as I would call it, diffusion strategies. This is where, this is something like what Save the Children is doing, where they internally fund a support function to kind of disseminate and provide support and some early training to other organizations to take up this piece of software that they've developed. So that is still, I think, a a workable model, but we just need different models for different innovations because funding-wise, the humanitarian system isn't, doesn't have the kind of financing at the moment to always support grant-funded innovations diffusion in that vein you know the the names that you've been putting on the table here save the children oxfam world food program i mean these are behemoths right uh, mm-hmm. these are people these are organizations that probably you know they have relative slush funds to you know look at innovation or they go and they you know they, they have capacity in places to do that is any of your work focused on what you know many people consider sort of the heart of innovation the the upstart, the startup, the, you know, the bootstrapped either department or small NGO that either has gotten a trickle of funding and they're trying to make it work or they're just sort of, they, you know, they, they create something from scratch and now other people are saying, hmm, this works and we're, we want to yeah. help you. Yeah, we looked at a couple of those. I think the HIF, the Humanitarian Innovation Fund, is quite good at trying to diversify their the portfolio of the projects that they fund. And even unfortunately, after this, this, the period for this case study research ended, they've done, they've released a lot more grants to, um, national NGOs in, in Southeast Asia as well. So those would be really exciting to look at. Unfortunately, unfortunately we were unable to, um, but two that we did look at were organizations, very, very small third sector organizations outside the humanitarian sector. One of them was is called Motivation and they're a design organization. They focus on providing innovations and, and services for uh, people with disabilities. And so they were the ones who designed that wheelchair for use in emergency settings. And they rely very much on a very small, close-knit team, people with overlapping backgrounds. They have a really uh, non-hierarchical structure, a kind of organizational culture built for innovation, really, which was really interesting to explore. They talked about having a no-blame environment, but also more than just removing the sticks. It's also about providing carrots. So they also gave a lot of credit to different people within the organization for contributions to an innovation process, which helped motivate staff, uh, which we thought was quite interesting. They're, they're quite nimble. They were able to make really rapid changes to their prototype quite quickly. They implemented this um, wheelchair in after Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. They made rapid changes to the wheelchair based on feedback from affected people who use that wheelchair quite quickly. They then sent out a new batch, a new iteration for the Nepal earthquake. So they're quite able, they're, they're able to be really quick on their feet. I think the downside for them 
partly maybe because of size, but also partly because they're outside the traditional humanitarian players club, if you will, is trying to get that access to humanitarian agencies as purchasers of this wheelchair and really trying to advocate for the need for humanitarian agencies to see you know, services for, disabil- for disabled people as an integral part of their response. So trying to build these wheelchairs into part of your normal kind of response package that gets flown out within 24 or 48 hours after a, an emergency. So that's, that's one example. Another really good example, I think, is words of relief. So this was uh, an innovation that was created by Translators Without Borders, who's traditionally a development player. They created, and incidentally, they've, they've been on the Terms of Reference podcast. Oh, have they? Oh, mm-hmm. great. Okay. Then hopefully they've talked to you at length about their fantastic Words of Relief project, which was providing local language services to humanitarian agencies to help them communicate with affected people in local languages rather than in English and French. And one of these things, I think as an aside, it's really interesting about innovation in general. Some of these ideas you think, oh, you know, it's kind of obvious, but then it you ask, well, why weren't we doing this before? And I think that's really been the brilliance of the Words of Relief project. So they came up with Words of Relief. They piloted it in or, or further piloted it in the Ebola crisis where it was really needed because agencies weren't able to get out and have that face-to-face contact with people and also spreading information about the Ebola virus, how it was contracted was super important and really important to have it in people's local languages so they could understand it. And I think the words of relief model then has been quite successful because other agencies, humanitarian agencies have really seen the value of it and have approached Translators Without Borders to implement it in other situations. I think now they're implementing in the European refugee crisis as well. So those are two of the smaller organizations that we looked at who were able to innovate. And again, they get kind of what you would expect. They have a lot of strengths in being able to be really responsive to user end user needs, really responsive to context. Um, the downside then is is trying to get access to the broader set of end users and gatekeepers as well in order to achieve that wider diffusion. Mm. You've had access to these organizations because of your connection with the HIF and all map and those kinds of things. Do you think that you would be able to do this same kind of research either Okay, let's say you're still working at up and you're a researcher. Could you knock on the door of these organizations and say, hey, we'd, we'd like to you know, figure out your innovation process or we'd like to learn more about it? Mm-hmm. Or do you think there'd be pushback? Do you think there'd be resistance? Or have you found mostly that people are willing to sort of open up the kimono and be like, yeah, let's help, help us figure it out? Yeah, I think, you know, innovators are a pretty open and creative bunch. I think they're really good for the humanitarian system. The people we talked to, by and large, were very open um, and really open, not just about you know what they did well, but really about the challenges that they faced and the mistakes and uh, maybe we won't call them failures, but uh, but yeah, the mistakes that they that they made and things that they wish they had done differently. I think maybe when you get into the bigger agencies and you start looking at a broader at a broader level outside of the project level we were very focused on the project level you start talking to these agencies more broadly about their innovation practice maybe there would be a bit more um sensitivity but i think that's where there needs to be more of an honest conversation about risk uh that was another thing that we found in the research is having more in-depth conversations about what does risk actually mean in an innovation process in an innovation process and in a humanitarian context and how should we be thinking about risk in a responsible way and i think that conversation still needs to happen both 
um, publicly, but also even internally in a lot of these companies. Unpack that for me. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to have conversations with organizations as big as UNICEF and as small as, you know, as you said, Translation Without Borders or these organizations. Mm-hmm. What is the hiccup with risk? That mm-hmm. Can you just unpack that for a little bit for me? Sure. So I think one of the issues around risk is risk to what? I think a lot of people tend to think about risk to, in terms of to the project. So in terms of to the project being on time, being on budget and achieving the objectives that we said we would achieve. Whereas when you look at... And is that driven, sorry to interrupt, but is that ultimately driven by donor expectations? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Which still require, you know, doing a formal risk assessment at the outset of an innovation process or any project, and then trying to track those particular risks throughout. What we found was more successful with a lot of the grantees of the HIF that we looked at was that teams were actually, it wasn't about listing all the risks at the beginning and then watching for them to come up. It was more about making the process really agile and remaining open and responsive to identifying risks as they arose, things that you didn't expect to have happen to you, and then find ways of of dealing with that and mitigating it and maintaining the kinds of flexibility on your teams that you could respond as as they came as they came up. So it was more about having agility, adaptiveness and flexibility in the process rather than identifying risks and then trying to monitor them monitor them as as you go. I would say, but there's kind of two caveats there. One caveat is, again, having the right focus. You need to focus on on risk to the success of the innovation, not the risk to the project going to time, right? And that's a key difference that needs to come with a kind of mental shift in the in the minds of the people running the innovation and also in the, those who are funding the innovation. And the second key point is, to think more seriously about risk to whom. And I think when we talk about wanting to increase innovation in the aid sector, we talk about how organizations are too risk averse um, and we need to take, be more comfortable with taking risk. But oftentimes what we've seen in innovation is that it's not very clear who is actually taking on that additional risk. Is it affected people? Is it the organization? Is it the donor? I think having some clarity around risks to whom and kind of thinking about risk, particularly in terms of harm, is quite important as well. So what are the potential harms that you're posing in the innovation process um, and how are you trying to mitigate uh, those harms, particularly when it's involving end users or affected people especially? So I think that there's a lot a lot there to be explored in terms of clarifying um, risk to what and risk to whom in order to enhance innovation in the humanitarian system. Of the 15 case studies that you've done thus far, or maybe from a broader portfolio that you've been looking at, what's the coolest thing that you've seen right now? Like, what's your go-to story when you're talking with somebody, like you say, over a beer or coffee or whatever, and you're like, Mm -hmm. this is awesome? I think the IFRC, I think it was the only case study we looked at, speaking of affected people, is the only case study we looked at where there was a real intensive involvement of crisis-affected populations. So the IFRC, International Federation for the Red Cross, uh, Red Crescent, they wanted to look at this issue of menstrual hygiene management. And so this was something that was coming up in evaluations. It was coming up 
as uh, requests or feedback from affected people over and over again that there needed to be in the kind of personal hygiene kits that were given out to affected people. They really wanted a special kind of menstrual hygiene package for women and girls. This was coming up repeatedly in evaluations, but there was no action really being taken on this. So it took a person who was at the IFRC to really advocate that the IFRC act on this and try and develop a special kit um, for women and girls um, for for sanitation pur- purposes when menstruating. And what they did in terms of designing it was they didn't just kind of pull together what they thought would be useful. They actually made the process very participatory. So they used focus group discussions to talk with focus groups of women and girls, first in Burundi, and then later in, in three additional countries to work out what kinds of things that they would want to see in the kits. Uh, would they want disposable pads, for example, or reusable pads? So they talked to them about it. They showed them different options. They then went back and designed the kit based on that feedback, and then they've piloted it. So they've piloted using, for example, the reusable or the disposable pads to see which ones are preferred. And then they're going to take that feedback again to redesign the kits afterwards and then put that up on the IFRC catalog for further dissemination. So I think that one really sticks out in my mind because it's one where the humanitarian agency got the problem recognition from affected people and then went back to affected people to really work on the solution design. And I think that's something where the humanitarian system could really make um, and humanitarian actors could really make more use out of those approaches, trying to you know work with problems as identified by affected people and then work on solution design hmm. in a more way. And, you know, just in my mind, I'm thinking maybe the, you know, our audience would be thinking, who will be listening to this as well, is that would just seem to be like the default method for, for doing this. But what you're telling me is the default method seems to be quite the opposite where, you know, uh, an aid worker or somebody has identified it and then let's, let's come up with a prototype and then let's bring it to the field and see if the prototype works rather than let's talk to the people. Yeah, I think that is quite common. And I think, I mean, again, this might be the different perspective from a, from the humanitarian context. This gets into that whole debate about, you know, my background is more on accountability and this comes up a lot with accountability practices in terms of participation. So in the humanitarian system, there's clearly the value of, of participatory approaches is, is widely recognized, but there's oftentimes constraints due to time because of emergency contacts. And that's the value of doing, of participatory consultation. And then also, uh, the kind of political elements that can be brought in there that some humanitarian agencies are, uh, you know, quite reasonably a bit sensitive about and trying to make sure that, um, their aid and their interventions aren't politicized and that that's, you know, participation can be a very political process. But that all of that said, I think that is a, an area of movement that many humanitarian actors are going towards. I think it's it's something that comes up th- in the common humanitarian standards, which is the humanitarian's uh, framework for accountability. And so I see it as something that is hopefully in the future of, of both humanitarian action, but also humanitarian innovation. Mm-hmm. It's possibly something that you guys on the development side have been doing for, for quite some time. Well, I like to think that we're on both sides at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about... Is, is your sense of the humanitarian field that everyone has sort of an office of innovation or at least an innovation officer or somebody who is looking at this or no, is this still cutting edge kind of, kind of bleeding edge kind of stuff? Mm, absolutely. I don't, I don't think 
there are a whole lot. I mean, there, there are some in the major agencies. You have innovation units and hubs. And I think I hear about a lot more of these being set up every, every week, it seems. Um, so it is growing, but I think it's far from the, you know, to just use an analogy, accountability, where it's common standard practice to have an accountability officer or liaison or someone who's it's built into the M&E position there. I think innovation isn't quite there yet. And I think that's actually kind of a good thing. It should be really thought out. You know, this isn't something that is just you hire a single person to do. It has to be an organization-wide approach, thinking strategically about how do we embed innovative practices within our organization? Is it something we build into each program? Is it something that we set up a separate unit for? I think organizations are still trying different approaches, and it'll be interesting to see which ones are more effective. Mm. Now, this may be a potentially sensitive question, but you know we're in the humanitarian space. Let's talk about it. You're a researcher. You're not an implementer, but you are a woman. And have you found in your research that this space is dominated by dudes? I know, you know, when I, when I've been out there looking for people to be on the show and, you know, I'm lucky enough to be a practitioner in the space as well. There's a lot of dudes out there and they've got lots of gadgets and those kinds of things. Incidentally, I'm glad many of the stories you've talked about have been non-technology related, right? Mm. Um, but is there a sense there that, that women are, are as much a part of this as guys or, or what's your sense about it? Yeah, I, I think it's a really good question. And I, I mean, when you look at the, managers on the on the humanitarian side or if i look at i mean i think about the project leads and the projects that were part of these case studies there is a good mix if not uh i think a preference or a higher prevalence of women who were leading these innovations in the case of of that, that i was just discussing the ifrc case it was a woman who recognized the problem um, and it's not just because it was menstrual health. I was just going to say, unsurprisingly hygiene. so, but yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, actually when we've also spoken to her afterwards, she's left in that position and gone somewhere else. And now her crusade is around, you know, improving wash approach approaches for children under five, which she sees as a neglected issue. So I think it's more about being creative and thinking outside the box um, to see problems and then advocate for them. I think that in that sphere of things, there's a lot of uh, female leadership. I think where there do tend to be more men is, as as you're saying, you know, it's around kind of the technical aspects, you know, the IT and the design of tools, using tools in a broad sense. I'm really thinking of, you know, the wash sector, you know, designing of kits. It tends to still be quite male dominated. And I think, you know, another case that we've been looking at is, is a, innovation by Danish demining group where they're designing a digital platform for two-way communication with affected people or people affected by the the crisis in in eastern Ukraine and again there that that's come up as a as a question around you know how kind of male dominated the demining community uh, can be as well because of that background it tends to be overlapping a lot with with um, military personnel and so it tends to be more male and the kinds of perspectives that that brings so I think to some extent yes there are there is a, a lack of, of women in certain key areas on innovation but I think I wouldn't say that innovation as a whole practice when you look at all of the actors that are involved and that have to be involved for humanitarian innovation that it's male dominated I think there's still quite a strong sense of female leadership at least not within the humanitarian side. Hmm. Where do you go from here? 
tell us about you know where are you in the arc of completing this research of these case studies uh, and you know, how we get you know how we get a hold of them first of all. But then, is this an ongoing practice for you within ALNOP? Uh, is there going to be another series of case studies, or you know, how, how does this go forward for you? So we've we're publishing the case studies. We've been publishing them over the past few months, and they're available on the ALNOP website. We are currently in the process of finalizing, um, including looking at really cool graphics, the synthesis report. So we've been synthesizing the findings from all of the case studies, and that synthesis report will be launched on the 21st of April. After that, we're planning to work a little bit uh, with the HIF on some dissemination activities. We have to take our own advice and think about diffusion, and diffusion is really <laughs> important. So we're going to be looking at repackaging some of the key findings, perhaps in some short videos, and also provide some support to the HIF on how to think about monitoring and evaluation from an innovation perspective. Because it seems like there's still a lot of work that could be done to adapt monitoring and evaluation processes to make them more innovation friendly. So we're working on that. As someone who's in the, been in the innovation field for 10 years, yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. I'm going to coin my phrase once again, stop evaluating, start performing. That's my new thing. Second to last question for you is, is there anyone, you know, you, you've been doing this research, but you're, you're somebody who's paid to be out there looking um, at these things. Is there anyone who's out there um, that you're really, really, you know, excited about, or an innovation that you haven't talked about right now that you think is worthy of mention? That, mm. that you know that you know you think that this organization is really, you know, really out there, really hot. I don't think so. I'm sorry. I don't really know. I mean, I think I think that all of the the cases that we looked at were really exciting. I think in terms of an organization, I guess I would I would say look at the Humanitarian Innovation Fund because they are the premier funder of, of innovation practice in the humanitarian system. And I think that they've found a lot of really interesting and novel projects to support. And as I mentioned, the ones that they've been sp- supporting even more recently, I think are looking even more at radical kinds of game-changing innovation. So it'd be helpful um, to look at, at what they're funding. The, the one question that I wanted to ask that I stumbled upon there was, I've heard you mention a couple of times, you know, people who you, re- you you were working with in the research and then they moved on to other positions or, you know, how the, how this innovation process takes place. That's what we started our conversation with. Mm. Is it possible to build a career in this? I mean, is this something that people could be looking at and, and you're finding more and more people like, hey, I, I want to be the innovation person? Or is that still the program managers or the field officers or the whomever kind of just pick up the flag for a while and get something done and then move on to something else? I think so in terms of the current practice or where it might be going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think currently it does seem to be project managers who I it doesn't seem right to say this, but I'm struggling to find another way to describe it. It's project managers or implementers who kind of fall into doing an innovation project because they've identified a problem that they really think needs to be addressed. The mother of invention, uh, basically, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Rather than being a kind of gun for hire, you know, innovator or innovator across different um, programming issues. I think that, you know, one of the key things that we talk about at the end of the report is that there's a real need to build stronger tools and practices around this. And so that would perhaps necessitate or benefit from 
having kind of quote unquote innovation specialists. But I think the point about translation is really important to keep in mind. So you need people who can understand the humanitarian context really well, but then also understand whatever technical um, area is relevant to that innovation, whether that's, you know, water filtration technologies, whether that's IT, you know, whether it's engineering, whatever that is. So you need that person to kind of have some special translation abilities that are specific to the particular innovation. Beyond that, looking at the kinds of agile approaches to programming that have been used in the tech sector and trying to adapt those for humanitarian context, those could perhaps be developed and learned by, you know, innovation specialists. I think in terms of whether that's a great career to go into, I guess if you're interested in it anyway, you are probably more of a risk taker. So you might try to to build a career in it regardless of whether or not there's opportunities opening up. But I certainly think that in over the next few years, there's going to be, there's going to be a need for more of that um, expertise. How that actually gets built in, I think remains to be seen. Alice, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast. Thank you, Stephen. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 